It's no longer an esoteric area of the law. You know, customary international law, doctrines of parent company liability, how those intersect, this will become, I think, one of the dominant themes in the coming years. And everyone who's involved in uh, in corporate policy, corporate structure, and risk advisory and risk litigation work needs to know about this area. Welcome to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast with your hosts, Andrew McComb from Toronto and Elsa Bloomer from Calgary. This episode is about international parent company liability. Can a Canadian parent of a multinational organization be liable for its foreign subsidiaries actions abroad? Last year, the Supreme Court of Canada found that Eritrean mine workers could pursue claims in Canada against Nevson Resources for alleged human rights abuses connected with the subsidiaries operation in Eritrea. That lawsuit settled in October last year, but the ruling means multinational companies, particularly energy resource companies with operations across the world, must be alive to the risk that foreign plaintiffs can bring claims directly against a parent of an offending subsidiary in Canadian courts. At the same time, the nature of claims brought by foreign plaintiffs is evolving. Instead of establishing liability through piercing the corporate veil, Canadian courts are open to the possibility of novel duties of care owed by parent companies based on their corporate responsibility statements. And one of the interesting cases you'll hear us talk about on this point is Chock and Hub Bay Minerals, a claim brought by Guatemalan mine workers in the Ontario Superior Court. Global scrutiny on all types of companies to act sustainably and responsibly is increasing, meaning questions of international corporate liability are being raised by courts in key jurisdictions across the Western world, not just in Canada, but the Netherlands, Australia, Hong Kong, the UK, and the US. So this is obviously a huge topic. Our goal in this episode is just going to be to understand the significance of the evolving liability risk. For example, what's happened to the concept of the corporate veil as a means of insulating liability up the corporate chain? On a practical level, what factors might increase the risk of these claims against parent entities? And what role could arbitration play for mitigating the impact of some of these issues? With us to talk about this topic were Alison Fitzgerald and Martin Balasek. Alison is of counsel in our Ottawa office, who specializes in international arbitration, trade, and investment law. Alison's international arbitration practice covers a number of industry sectors, including oil and gas, construction, aerospace, and technology and software licensing. Alison also has a background in public international and constitutional law, where she has represented clients in human rights abuse cases in connection with their foreign operations. And joining Alison is Martin Valasek, who you heard in the clip at the beginning of this episode. Martin is a partner in our Montreal office and he's head of our Canadian international arbitration team. Martin has extensive experience in both investor state and commercial contract disputes, covering a wide range of industries, from aerospace to banking, construction, energy and pharmaceuticals. Also, if you would like to understand more about the Global Disputes risk profile for multinational businesses, Norton Rose Fulbright has produced a comprehensive guide to parent company liability for foreign subsidiaries. A link to this guide is in this episode's description. Alison, Martin, thank you very much for joining us on Disputed. Thank you. It's good to be here. Pleasure. So guys, Ailsa and I have done our homework and and what I can take away from that homework is this is a fascinating topic, but it's also a huge one. There's a vast amount of case law, treaties, statutes, principles that affect what we're going to talk about on this podcast. 
So maybe can you start us off by telling us who needs to pay attention to this episode and why? I think the short answer to that is everyone. Um, there has been a, a doctrine in place in Canada and again in many other jurisdictions that's essentially prevented uh, putative plaintiffs from piercing what's called the corporate veil. And so that veil that um, has essentially shielded parent companies from liability has um, held for um, many, many years. It's arguably now under attack. Uh, and in some respects, um, plaintiffs are, are looking where they're not able to pierce through it uh, to sidestep it by looking for ways to uh, sue parent companies directly. So just to start at the beginning, traditionally, parent liability is established through the process of piercing the corporate veil. Can you explain this theory of the corporate veil and how companies have made use of it to contain their liability? Historically, each entity in the corporate structure has been considered to have its own separate legal personality. And so this theory of corporate veil piercing is essentially a phenomenon that happens when a court disregards the separate personality of each of the corporations or the entities in that corporate chain. That's called piercing the veil. And so when that happens, um, subsidiaries' actions can be attributed to its parent, wherever that parent is in the world, meaning that the parent becomes liable for any um, harmful conduct for which the subsidiary is responsible. Um, there are, as I mentioned earlier, um, piercing the corporate veil is typically not easy. Typically, plaintiffs would have had to have demonstrated um, that a subsidiary was wholly dominated and controlled by the parent and was actually used as a shield and set up for an improper or fraudulent purpose. Obviously, fraud is um, a, a, high, a high bar to prove. Um, secondarily, uh, you could have uh, you could pierce the um, corporate veil uh, where the sub you can demonstrate that the subsidiary acted um, as an agent for the parent company, so demonstrating an agency relationship or otherwise where a statute or, or a contract um, provides for it. I suppose I could add to the, uh, the the corporate veil analysis some observations on what companies try to do in order to actually. Uh, invoke the corporate veil or be in a position to invoke it. And so traditionally, in order to be able to invoke the corporate veil, parent companies typically will ensure that their subsidiaries uh, have boards that are functioning independently, have a majority of directors that are not resident in Canada, that meet regularly in the foreign jurisdiction uh, to receive operations updates and make policy decisions. And uh, the point of that, of course, is ultimately to demonstrate when necessary that the subsidiaries are operating in a way that enables the parent company to invoke the corporate veil and uh, insist on the, the separate corporate identities for purposes of jurisdiction. So obviously, companies can take their cues from the common law on how to arrange their affairs so as to make sure that that veil gets protected, but our attitudes towards the sort of the sanctity of the corporate veil changing in the law that you see? I think they absolutely are. I think courts are increasingly looking at corporations and considering that they should not be able to um, absolve themselves of any responsibility for wrongdoing that happens somewhere along their corporate chains. Um, and courts... Um, in Canada and abroad, have been increasingly willing 
uh, even where a plaintiff is unable to pierce the veil, to look at um, other theories and acknowledge that there is some possible basis on which a theory could move forward in negligence or even in a new nominant tort um, uh, in which the plaintiff could sue that parent company directly in a Canadian court um, as a result of conduct, for example, that the parent company has undertaken vis-a-vis its subsidiary or the operations on the ground. So on that point, can you outline some key decisions that suggest there's been a shift away from piercing the corporate veil and perhaps a move towards an alternative method of establishing liability, such as through novel duties of care? So there are several courts in Canada that have been um, looking into these matters and um, that have uh, received claims from foreign plaintiffs attempting to uh, sue uh, Canadian parent companies directly for events that have occurred abroad. Um, one interesting case is uh, Chalk and Hud Bay Minerals. It's a claim that was brought uh, before the Ontario Superior Court a number of years ago now uh, by a group of Guatemalan plaintiffs. Now, these are, these are uh, Guatemalan uh, nationals working in uh, a mine uh, that is operated by uh, a subsidiary of Hud Bay Minerals, ultimately owned through uh, a corporate chain with uh, several uh, corporate entities in between the Canadian parent and the local subsidiary. The nature of the claim that was brought was in relation to treatment suffered, um, not even at the hands of the subsidiary down the chain from HUD Bay, but at the hands of a security uh, company that had been retained by the subsidiary in order to maintain security over the site. So not uh, only not only is it a, a, a parent liability issue, but it's a parent liability issue on top of a vicarious liability type issue. Absolutely. So this is how many of these claims evolve. They're not even necessarily directly aimed at conduct that uh, the subsidiary and chain from the parent was responsible for, but may have been responsible for overseeing in the sense of having engaged a subcontractor or provider of services. Now, the Guatemalan plaintiffs, essentially, they they attempted to sue directly Hud Bay for the treatment that they had suffered. They alleged a number of uh, different uh, fairly horrific uh, abuses uh, by uh, employees of this security company that had been engaged by the local subsidiary. Now, um, Hud Bay uh, fought the claim in Canada, and an important point to bear in mind, it's relevant to this case and it's relevant to every case that is proceeded before a Canadian court so far is that none of these cases have been adjudicated on the merits. What Canadian courts have proved to be open to is acknowledging that there is um, a legal possibility that this claim could move forward to an adjudication on the merits with eventual liability at the the feet of the the parent uh, company. So so I think that's an important point to emphasise there. This is not the court saying parent companies are responsible for the acts of their foreign subsidiaries. This is court saying it is possible for a foreign plaintiff to sue the parent company in Canada, but there is no substantive decision on the merits yet. So, i.e., there's no precedent saying, yes, a duty of care is owed, and here is an example of conduct amounting to a breach of that duty. That's correct. 
um, no Canadian court has actually adjudicated on that issue, that there is uh, a positive duty of care uh, on Canadian parent companies that can give rise to uh, direct liability uh, as a result of harm suffered by a, a foreign plaintiff. Um, we've yet to get that far in the jurisprudence. But even even that far, Allison, it's interesting in terms of the economics of how these cases go. I mean, you mentioned that often these types of cases are going to be class proceedings. And, of course, and once you get to that stage, either on a motion to strike or a certification motion or the motion to strike test of whether a pleading discloses a reasonable cause of action is going to be built into the analysis and you get a judge saying, well, I'm not going to throw this case out on that ground. Well, then that's, you know, that's distributing some risk towards that parent, even at that moment. I mean, not to mention, Andrew, the reputational element as well, even just having it on the court public record that an entity is being sued for alleged human rights abuses. Regardless of the liability outcome, that can have huge consequences for organisations, especially those that have been very public about their commitments to sustainability and ethical conduct. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, the, the, in terms of how Canadian courts are receiving these claims, and HUD Bay is a good example of this, um, one of the bases for the Ontario Superior Court to allow the claim to move forward and not kill it at a motion to strike um, phase is the court, the court actually looked at the engagement between the parent and the sub, right? And, and HUD Bay, in some respects, uh, looked like a model corporate citizen based on the policy structure that they had rolled out, um, the standards that they had adopted for, for workers, uh, the promotion of human rights within their corporate environment, the, the standards that they had uh, expected to be observed by um, all participants in their supply chain as well, including notionally that security company that was retained uh, to provide security services with respect to the mine site. That, having taken those steps, was one of the bases on which the court um, acknowledged there was a possibility that um, a novel duty of care could be made out in direct liability as against the parent company. Having a robust policy framework in place that, that, sets, that sets a rigorous standard for conduct has frankly been viewed as um, a, an asset within a responsible corporate community. And I think there is a bit of a risk with how the reasoning has been articulated in the Canadian courts that corporations may now look at that and see that robust policy environment as a risk as opposed to a risk mitigating device. And it sounds like it creates a real tension between the incentive to have those robust policies in place and to take an active role in making sure that your subs are conducting themselves appropriately and also trying to manage your risk and exposure. I, I think it may do. My concern is that companies may look at how the discourse is evolving in the courts and see um, the presence of conduct standards within their company as a risk in itself, as opposed to continuing to see them as a risk mitigating device, which I continue to think they are. Um, I think we'd, we'd be remiss if we didn't flag that in some cases, in some jurisdictions, parent companies are no longer um, left to take that, to, to take those steps voluntarily. So where parent companies are seated in a jurisdiction that has moved forward to legislate 
uh, for example, certain responsibilities like the duty of vigilance that has now been legislated in France that has had an impact on how um, French parent corporations um, operate, um, how they um, uh, maintain their investments uh, abroad. Uh, in Canada, we don't yet have comparable legislation, but a bill has been tabled that would effectively introduce a modern slavery act and that would, for example, um, uh, outlaw um, uh, forced labor of the nature that we'll discuss uh, in the Nevson case. But for those companies seated in jurisdictions where parliament or their legislature has actually taken a step to legislate this, they don't really have a choice but to adopt uh, rigorous standards that they're going to apply throughout their chain. They can't walk back from that. And I suspect that will increasingly become the case so that companies will simply need to navigate this. Ultimately, what may um, save companies that are sued by foreign plaintiffs for human rights abuses um, or even things like uh, environmental harm and climate change disputes, for example, um, what may save them at the end of the day is um, the fact that they turn their minds to these issues, the fact that they were diligent in taking um, steps to define um, appropriate standards of conduct, um, to train their people, um, to actually uh, audit their programs, for example, to live and breathe um, the, the policies that they've put into place and the conduct standards that they've put into place. I think that's a really interesting point. The idea of Canada introducing legislation that mandates human rights due diligence procedures for companies. I mean, the existence of such a, a possible statute, that should provide some comfort for companies, shouldn't it? Because it gives entities an opportunity to point to that legislation, to, to demonstrate their compliance with, let's say, disclosure and reporting obligations that might be under that statute or regulation. And that could be a possible defence to these allegations, couldn't it? Absolutely. It may also provide a legal framework in order to inform the scope of the duty of care. And as well, the extent to which companies are going to increasingly great lengths to tell their shareholders or potential shareholders about the things that they're doing as good corporate citizens, you have to imagine that those promises and commitments will be the sorts of things that may revisit them in the event that their commitments fall short of reality in how they're engaging with subsidiaries, foreign subsidiaries, or, or otherwise. So the, the HUD Bay precedent is so interesting, just, just for everyone to understand that what you say about what you mean to do uh, will play a role in determining how interested our courts are in, in engaging with, um, with, with what it is that you're really doing out there. Absolutely. And, you know, much of this where corporations are um, undertaking to put into place robust policy structures, compliance programs, training, etc. A lot of that is driven by shareholders in a public uh, company environment. In many cases, shareholders want to be investing in companies that um, are, in fact, ensuring that they're ethical companies, um, that their business conduct is consistent throughout their operations. And ESG activism, right? It's hugely on the rise. It's it's on everyone's minds. Absolutely. The rise of ESG and sustainability and activ activism around those issues is definitely going to be a separate topic for another episode or even a series of episodes. But for now, I think we need to keep on track. So we just, we need to talk about the leading decision in this area 
at the moment, and that is the Supreme Court of Canada decision in Nevson Resources that was handed down last year. So going back to um, Nevson, which is the most recent iteration of this discussion in Canada, in terms of the, the factual matrix underpinning the claim, um, the case related to allegations of abuse of workers uh, at a mine site in Eritrea, in which uh, Nevson has an interest. Um, three Eritrean uh, mine workers or former mine workers in particular came forward and um, provided some evidence that they had been forced to provide uh, labor at the mine site. Uh, they alleged uh, a number of different types of abuse uh, that had happened um, routinely at the mine site, uh, workers having been beaten with sticks, tying their uh, tying their elbows uh, and feet together behind their back, leaving them in the Eritrean sun, and various other uh, harmful acts. This all began with a claim uh, that was filed uh, on behalf of a class in the BC Supreme Court. A motion similar to a motion to strike was uh, brought um, on several bases. There was an appeal uh, to the BC uh, Court of Appeal. Again, this is Nevson appealing up through uh, the chain and eventually to the level of the Supreme Court appealing on um, two main grounds. One of them in connection with something called the Act of State Doctrine, uh, which is essentially to say, well, these are really acts of the Eritrean state, not acts of a private entity, um, and Canadian courts cannot sit in judgment of the acts of a foreign state. Um, and then also, um, again, on the basis that many of the claims were framed in the language of customary international law and alleged breaches of customary international law, Nevson took the position that these were not there were not recognized causes of action to fully directly in Canadian law of breach. So that was the nature of what the Supreme Court was looking at in a very close judgment, five to four, is that novel claims for breach of customary international law norms, um, as pleaded by the Eritrean plaintiffs, do disclose a reasonable cause of action as against the parent company directly for being complicit in the abuses. Allison, can you just unpack what the Supreme Court is referring to when it's considering this idea of customary international law? Sure. So in very simple terms, customary international law is generally considered to be composed of two things. One, state practice, and two, something called opinio juris. So there are very few norms that are recognized to exist under customary international law, in part because it requires broad uh, agreement or consensus among the community of nations as to um, what that norm is, um, how we understand it, whether or not it can be actionable, classically as against a state. So, uh, for example, if a state is accused of crimes against humanity, then you might look to something like the Rome Statute for um, a generally agreed definition of what might constitute a crime against humanity. Um, state responsibility could be engaged where a state is found to have committed such a crime, precisely because it is considered to be um, something that is condemned by the community of nations as a whole, as a heinous act. What the Supreme Court of Canada did in Nelson is that it said, well, um, we think uh, 
we think it is at least possible in our system of law uh, that we could not only potentially hold a state responsible for a violation of a customary international law norm, but we could potentially hold a corporate body responsible for that. And as we mentioned in the Nevsing case, what they're really alleged to have done is to have been complicit with uh, the government of, of Eritrea or its instrumentalities in committing an alleged violation of several customary international law norms. In this sense, our Supreme Court has been a, a kind of first mover. It, it's why, first of all, I think Canadian courts are likely to see more of these claims, precisely because our highest court has said, we think this is at least possible. We don't think these claims are bound to fail. And until we have a court that works one of these claims through to the merits, I think Canadian corporations um, will have to live with the risk that uh, the corporate bodies, in fact, don't act customary international law have the same obligations that. Mm. Martin, what are your thoughts? One of the themes I think that clearly comes across is, is the risk of coming to conclusions on the basis of these jurisdictional decisions. I'm quite curious how a court will address the issue of actual liability of a company under principles of customary international law. The other observations I, I wanted to make, uh, Allison, about Nefson were, I guess, twofold. One, on, on the issue of customary international law, it again suggests that, uh, at least in Canada, where the highest court has now weighed in, a law which traditionally has been seen as being uh, a law that governs relationships among states is seeping into uh, the way that the courts are looking at the behavior of private actors. Now, there's never been a, a clear hermetic seal between uh, the private and public space in customary international law, but nevertheless, this decision truly opens up uh, a flow of, uh, of standards towards private actors that we haven't necessarily seen before. And I think that that suggests that we're not just looking at areas like international human rights abuses, but we, might, we may well be looking at future areas of customary international law, including obligations that are found to exist in areas like climate change, like resource use more broadly uh, as, uh, as the world addresses the issues that, uh, that have come forward so uh, evidently over the last uh, number of months. And let's face it, there is a, it was a close decision. It was 5-4. Uh, I think the dissent made some important points about going too far. And the courts themselves uh, have an eye on on their reputation, I think, in, in this very important area. Um, and I think the Supreme Court in Canada knows that as, as a Canadian court, perhaps it wants to be seen as a, as a progressive leader on, on these issues. But when you actually need to make out, you know, a, a verdict, if you will, or a decision on whether or not a company has violated customary international law to the point of having damages assessed against it, let alone its directors or officers, I think we're going to have to see how that plays out. And I think that now that people are thinking about this, you'll also see people on both sides um, working through how these principles can actually be uh, analyzed in a coherent way. And it could be that the best way to resolve some of these things will be 
not through customary international law, but through treaty law, where countries could actually get a handle on what their obligations are, what the rights of their investors are, but also what the obligations of their investors are. And that's an area that I think we'll see proceeding in parallel. I think it's been on the horizon for some time, but I think cases like Nefson are probably highlighting a certain urgency in bringing more coherence to the international framework for what companies can be expected to obtain from the countries in which they're investing. And that's the whole area of investment protection. But I think more and more, they need to know what their responsibilities are to the countries in which they're investing and to the international community as a whole. And that's a lot of hard work that not just lawyers, but negotiators and international uh, diplomats need to do to, to work through that. Well, it, again, this is an area in which Canada is arguably leading in that um, global affairs. Canada recently issued its new model uh, bilateral investment treaty uh, for an investment and uh, promotion agreement. It's the model treaty on which they will seek to negotiate um, additional bilateral investment treaties with foreign states and potentially seek to renegotiate old uh, bilateral investment treaties with current state partners. Uh, included within that model uh, is a provision with respect to um, business and human rights. In other words, that states will agree bilaterally that um, each will seek to hold businesses to an, essentially an international standard of business conduct. Not necessarily liability, but certainly that states will not seek to attract investment by, for example, um, lowering labor standards or uh, enabling things like child labor uh, in order to incent a company to set up business and uh, run its operations cheaply. So Canada is pushing uh, an agenda, I think, in, in that direction. That's so interesting. It, make, it makes me think that we should do an episode on the development of these investment treaties, you know, with universal standards of business conduct and how that fits with uh, the development of private investor ESG frameworks. But, um, but yeah, let, let's bring it back to the practical application of Nevson for now. And Martin, you mentioned the strong dissent in the decision too. What long-term impact do you think that the principles in Nevson are going to have? I think that if there is a strong decision uh, in favor of a company on, on liability, on the merits, then I, I think it could cool uh, the trend towards bringing such claims in Canadian courts because uh, it could simply indicate to potential plaintiffs that there is a costly process that may not result in, in, in a successful outcome. On the other hand, if those bringing the claims are more are, you know, are, are being supported by non-governmental organizations or by activists, they may well continue to bring such claims simply to attract attention to foreign practices. And if the goal is not the ultimate liability decision, but simply the jurisdictional decision or the headlines, then I think that that's you know, a completely separate concern. It's a public relations concern. And you know, we, we know that often the, the battle can be won or lost in that sphere uh, even if there is a very solid defense on the ultimate merits. So I, I think that companies really do need to be aware of this and increasingly uh, factor into their plans. Mm, I think that's what makes it even more frustrating, perhaps, that we don't have a decision on the merits. And I think 
Nevson was settled just over a year ago, and settlement tends to be the common outcome of these cases, of course, and in many ways it's the efficient route to reconciling the action from the company's perspective. But how, how do you even determine what a reasonable settlement amount would be? Especially when the allegation is that you're you're complicit, you know, you're not you're not the primary perpetrator, and that's where having a liability decision with a damages quantum that's put on the type of conduct or complicity would be really helpful. Elsa, I was I was going to make a, a similar observation that the fact that all three of these cases have settled leaves us in an in an environment in which we're commenting on cases where the judges necessarily assume the allegations to be true um, and worked through doctrines that the defendants sought to advance on the basis that they were. And therefore, it's, it's also important not to leap to conclusions about the liability that would eventually be imposed. We just don't know yet how the judges would evaluate how the company acted, whether it's uh, in respect of allegations of being complicit or actively in breach of a duty. And one would expect that at some point we will get a decision because at some point plaintiffs will be holding out for a damages amount that may simply not be acceptable to a company. And a company likely on the right facts will, will tell itself that they like their chances at showing not just to themselves, but to their shareholders and to the world at large, that they are willing to defend the way they do business uh, in that particular jurisdiction and around the world. Settlements are fine, obviously, as, as regards how the respective parties who are privy to the settlement feel about it, but it does leave open inferences uh, in the market, uh, in the legal community, in the business community, that neither side may want that community to come to. Uh, and there will be a case, I think, where, where those factors will lead to uh, a liability decision. So I just want to finish this discussion by asking about the role of international arbitration, which, of course, is both your areas of expertise. Alison, what role might arbitration play in resolving allegations of human rights abuses on similar claims? Could this be a more appropriate forum for multinational companies than the courts? There's been some discussion as to whether or not arbitration um, is um, potentially better suited uh, to manage the types of claims that are currently moving forward in the courts, alleging human rights abuses, et cetera. And so um, a, a body was formed in The Hague some years ago uh, to take a look at this question um, and consider whether or not there are elements of arbitration in particular that could be well adapted to the resolution, private adjudication of human rights, uh, business and human rights disputes. And the outcome of that study is essentially a body of rules called the Hague Rules on Business and Human Rights Disputes. Um, these are arbitration rules that have been created as a bespoke tool to address human rights, um, business and human rights disputes, human rights related claims arising from precisely the scenario we've been talking about, plaintiffs in one jurisdiction that have suffered some uh, alleged harm, we're seeking to claim against, say, a, a foreign parent. The, the challenge with this is that 
even with adaptations in arbitration rules. For example, the Hague rules have much more robust transparency provisions in them to ensure that there is publication of documents, to ensure that in a context where you may well have an entire community that has an interest in the outcome of the dispute, have access to what's happening in the dispute and its ultimate resolution, uh, to ensure there's um, legitimacy throughout the process and that it is capable of actually achieving a meaningful resolution of the dispute, you still need consent. That's been the most challenging question in terms of whether or not arbitration can serve as the right means by which to resolve these types of disputes. What the Hague rules do is they provide a tool that even after a dispute has arisen, a plaintiff class, for example, and a defendant could agree to adopt. And they can essentially fashion their own procedure to address those claims. What are the key reasons why parties might prefer to adopt this type of arbitration framework? There might be any number of reasons why uh, parties might wish to do that. Again, uh, a defendant company may wish to um, manage, at least to some extent, publicity around the claim. They may not want to be sued in the courts of their home jurisdiction. They may have to accept uh, along the lines of how the Hague rules have been drafted that there will be some transparency over the proceeding, but in a very orderly process. And plaintiff class may have an interest in um, having disputes arbitrated as opposed to uh, brought in a, in a foreign court. They would have a, a body of adjudicators, a, say a panel of three arbitrators uh, with expertise in this area, as opposed to um, a, a general judge, for example, in the BC Supreme Court or um, in the Ontario Superior Court that has general knowledge of any number of laws, but no particular expertise in dealing with the nature of uh, the allegations that may be made. So there could be interest on both sides to adopt those rules. Um, after a dispute has arisen, there could be a possibility for companies when they're initially setting up their, um, their operations abroad uh, to make an assessment of where are potential claims likely to come from? What is the footprint or the impact of our investment likely to be? Understanding that we're uh, going to maintain certain conduct standards, make an assessment of the jurisdiction. Is there a risk, for example, of some form of negative impact on the local environment? Who's likely to have an interest in that? And to see whether or not a class can be identified at the outset and buy-in secured at that stage to understand that any claims that do arise will in fact be ventilated in arbitration using the Hague rules as opposed to having that plaintiff class chase them in, in a foreign jurisdiction. That's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much, Andrew and Elsa, for leading us through the discussion. I had a thoroughly enjoyable time talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here with both of you today. So yes, thank you. Thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.